Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a sovereign grace fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently working our way through the book of Isaiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Tonight we are in Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40 is a major transition in the book of Isaiah. The first 39 chapters, what we've been seeing is God's predictions of how he is going to bring Assyria primarily down on Israel and on Judah as a judgment. And so the theme of judgment has been ringing very loudly over these first 39 chapters. But the next nine chapters from chapter 40 until chapter 48 are chapters about comfort and reassurance and promises from God that he's going to establish Jerusalem, that he's going to settle Israel back in their own land. And along the way, there are going to be promises of the Messiah to come. God yet again demonstrating that through Christ, all the promises of God are indeed yes and amen. That is true in the book of Isaiah. It's true in the New Testament. Chapter 40 starts out with the words, comfort, oh, comfort my people. This is a typical Hebraism inasmuch as it is a repetition of words for the purpose of emphasizing that particular concept. The word comfort here is a word that means from the heart. It implies the way that a mother would speak to a child in order to bring comfort to the child. And so if you're reading chapter 39 and you're reading about the fall of Hezekiah and the prediction of Babylon coming, and we know through Jeremiah that it's going to be 70 years that they're going to be in Babylon. And then Hezekiah says to Isaiah, the word of the Lord which you've spoken is good, for he thought there would be peace and truth in my days, nevertheless, What we know from verse 7 is that the people are going to be taken away and they shall become officials in the palace of the king of Babylon. The sons of Hezekiah are going to serve in Babylon. So if there wasn't that big 40 right there, it would seem very jarring to go right from that prediction of not only God preserving Jerusalem from Assyria, But then the prediction that Babylon is going to conquer Jerusalem and that the children of the king are going to be servants in Babylon. And then suddenly, comfort, oh comfort, speak words of comfort to my people. My people is defined by the very next verse, speak kindly to Jerusalem. Now, I'm going to emphasize this, even though it's going to be obvious to everybody in the room, and yet, for some reason, just not so obvious to people on the Internet for some reason, especially preachers on the Internet. I told Leon today that I didn't know if I was going to talk about what I've been listening to. 
In chapter 39, we read about Jerusalem. In fact, in the first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah, we read about Jerusalem. We know who Jerusalem is. We know where Jerusalem is. In a moment, actually in verse 9, you're going to see, O Zion, bearer of good news. O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. So there, Zion and Jerusalem are equated with each other. So we know geographically and historically who Jerusalem is. So I saw on Facebook just recently that somebody had posted a series of messages from an ostensibly sovereign grace guy. Actually, he's part of the free grace movement. And I saw that he had preached a series just recently on Isaiah. And so I thought, well, I'm going to go listen because that's what I do. I always listen. I want to hear what other people have to say. And besides, maybe I'll pick up something along the way. He did what so many preachers do when they say they're going to preach a series from the book of Isaiah. They don't actually go verse by verse through Isaiah. They take select portions of Isaiah. They're, of course, going to jump on Isaiah 9. They're, they're going to go right to, unto us a child is born and a son is given. And they're going to go right to Isaiah 53, and they're going to talk about the crucifixion. They're going to go to Isaiah 55. They're going to talk all the good stuff from Isaiah, and then they're going to apply it to the church. And that application of Isaiah to the church is what I want to emphasize at the moment, because the message I listened to just today, comfort, comfort my people, he said, is a comfort from God through Isaiah to the church, to God's people. And speak kindly to Jerusalem actually means speak kindly to the church of all the saved from the beginning of time until the return of Christ and the establishment of his kingdom. So Jerusalem there means all the believers of all time. And apparently nobody got up in the congregation and said, Wait a minute. Can you show me that? Can you prove that? The reason that people can get away with that kind of very dodgy hermeneutic is because they go through Isaiah and just pick out bits and pieces, just little sections, just the really good positive stuff. But now that we have gone through the first 39 chapters of Isaiah... It should be firmly established in our minds that when Isaiah says Jerusalem, he's talking about the same Jerusalem who Assyria has been attacking. The same Jerusalem who were going to be moved into the Babylonian captivity. That's the Jerusalem that Isaiah is talking about, especially given that Isaiah is a prophet to Israel and specifically to Judah and Jerusalem. So Isaiah has already defined his terminology, and there's no question about what it means. And yet somehow I heard today, not only did he claim that Jerusalem was the church of all the saved from the beginning until the return of Christ, but he said, and I've read many commentators that say the same thing. And I thought, well, then you're reading the wrong commentators. How about you read Isaiah? Because Isaiah contextually defines his own terms. So for the next nine chapters, 
you're going to hear yet again promises from God that belong to Jerusalem, that belong to Zion, that belong to Judah, that belong to Israel. So the promises are very specific, and the people to whom they belong is very specific if you just simply let the text say what it says. But along the way, we're going to see all of these passages that have to do with Christ, that have to do with the Messiah to come. And so it is easy for a modern-day commentator who wants to say that Isaiah is all about the church, it's easy for them to just pluck those passages about Christ out of their context and then say very good, positive things about Christ (coughs) that we would agree with. We would not disagree. We would say, yes, those things are all true of Christ. And so it gets very difficult because when you say that you disagree, it sounds like what you're saying is, I disagree with all that stuff you said about Christ. And that's not what I'm disagreeing with. I'm saying those things are true about Christ. But if they're true about Christ to the church, they're fundamentally true about Christ to Israel. Because Israel is the context. Israel receives the promises to begin with. And saying those good things about Christ to the church, to the exclusion of Judah and Jerusalem and Israel, is a very bad mistake. Because you have twisted the scripture to make it fit with your system. Okay, there, I got that off my chest. Comfort, oh, comfort my people. Speak comfort to my people, says the Lord God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended and that her iniquity has been removed And that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Okay, now we got to talk about that in more detail. At the end of chapter 39, there have just been a series of promises that God is going to protect Jerusalem from Assyria. But even in these next nine chapters that are about the comfort and restoration of Israel, nevertheless, there are going to be references to Babylon because Babylon is looming large in the immediate future of Israel. And so it's easy to read, and I think fair to read, verse 2 as a reassurance to Israel, knowing full well that they're about to go into captivity specifically Judah. It is comfort to Judah, even though they are about to go into the 70-year captivity. Turn to Leviticus 26. Let's start there. In fact, I'll tell you what, Tom, you turn to Leviticus 26, 34. The rest of us are going to go to 2 Chronicles chapter 36, right at the end of 2 Chronicles. In other words, you can go to the book of Ezra and go back one, and you'll be right at the very end of 2 Chronicles. Leviticus 26.34, the reason that Tom is going to read that to us is because it establishes the rule from God where he says, if you do my law, I'm going to bless you. If you don't do my law, I'm going to take you into captivity. I am going to scatter you. 
And one of the rules that God is very firm about is that every seven years, they have to allow the land to lay fallow. They can't farm the land. And every seven years, they have to allow it to keep its rest, to keep its Sabbath. And of course, Israel doesn't do that. So let's start by reading that. Can I do 35 also? You can read whatever you'd like. Okay. Verse 34 reads, Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate while you are in your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest, the rest it did not have on your Sabbaths when you were dwelling in it. Okay, now do you understand what God just said? He has just brought them into the promised land. He's laying out the Levitical law. And he says, let the land keep its Sabbaths, because after all, the land belongs to God, not to them individually. Let the land keep its Sabbaths. And when you don't, I'm going to drive you out of the land so that the land can keep its Sabbaths. Either way, the land is going to get its time of rest. So while you're out of the land, the land will keep its Sabbaths. Second Chronicles then If we start around verse 21, well, that's the middle of a sentence, verse 20. This is talking about the Babylonian captivity, all the articles of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures from the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and his officials. They're all going to be brought into Babylon. That's verse 18. Then they burned down the house of God and they broke down the wall of Jerusalem and they burned all the fortified buildings with fire and they destroyed all its valuable articles. That's verse 19. And those who had escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon. And they were servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia. In advance, we're told this is what's going to happen. You're going to go and serve in Babylon. You're going to serve there for 70 years. And then the king of Persia is going to come in, the very king of Persia, who Isaiah is going to name by name 150 years in advance, establishing that indeed this is what the history of the Middle East is going to look like. God is going to take Israel into the land of Babylon. They're going to be there for 70 years until Persia overtakes Babylon. And then they're going to be able to come back to the land of Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, rebuild the walls in troublous times. Verse 21, why is God doing all that? To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land has enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation, it kept its Sabbath until the 70 years were complete. Israel did not let the land keep its Sabbaths, mostly for economic reasons, to keep trading with other nations and to continue feeding its own people. They didn't trust God, that God was going to feed them every seventh year. So they didn't follow God's Sabbath rules for the land. Therefore, God sent them for 70 years into the Babylonian captivity. But before he sent them into the Babylonian captivity, he spoke these words in Isaiah 40, which was comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem 
and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, and that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. There's two ways to read that last phrase. Either God is going to be twice as gracious to them, but I think what he's saying here is, at the end of the 70 years, you will have paid the debt that you owe me, and God will have extracted that debt, which he promised you in the Levitical law, which is written about in 2 Corinthians so that you understand the purpose for God actually doing it, and that there's going to be a time of peace for Jerusalem, and they're going to be restored after the Babylonian captivity. But then also, there is this wonderfully prophetic phrase that at some point their iniquity will be removed. Perhaps Isaiah is talking about the iniquity of not letting the land lay through its Sabbaths, lay fallow, and therefore being out of their land for 70 years has then been adequate payment for their iniquity. Or God may be speaking more like he speaks to Daniel when he says that there are 490 years determined against God's people, and one of the things he says is going to be accomplished during that time is that the iniquity is going to end. So maybe he's talking prophetically end times eschatologically here and saying ultimately the iniquity is going to be removed from Jerusalem or maybe he's saying at the end of the Babylonian captivity you will have paid the debt that you owe me for not letting the land lay fallow either way and here's my point either way it's Jerusalem either way it has to do with the very people who didn't let the land lay fallow. That's not the church. That's not believers of all time from the beginning all the way to the return of Christ. The language is so specific that it has to be the very same Jerusalem that are guilty of these crimes, the very same Jerusalem who have the law of God, the very same Jerusalem who were told to leave the land laying fallow, and then God held them guilty and drove them out of their land for not allowing the land to keep its Sabbaths. Either way, that's the people group that God is predicting comfort and restoration to. And whatever else you want to say about Jesus being good to his church or the grace of God in bringing all his people to him, if you're saying all that to the exclusion of the promises that are made to Jerusalem specifically, then you're doing damage to the word of God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended. Again, maybe that means ultimately the warfare is ended, or maybe it simply means that the warfare of the Assyrians and the Babylonians capturing them has ended, and then her iniquity, her guilt, has been removed, that she has received then from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Starting at verse 3, there's going to be a series of voices calling. You're going to see this phrase several times, a voice is calling, and sometimes God says, cry out. So there's a lot of speaking going on. The speaking, you will see, all concerns Jerusalem. There is a voice calling, saying, Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. 
Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low and let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. And then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That passage from Isaiah is so popular in the New Testament that all four gospel writers quote it and apply it to John the Baptist. So there's no question what the fulfillment is here. In fact, if you would, Tom, Matthew 3, you're going to read 1 to 5. Steve, if you would, Mark 1, you're going to read 1 to 5. Micah, if you would, Luke 3, you're going to read 1 to 6. Leon, you want to read? Give you a big section. John 1, 19 to 28. So not only do the synoptic gospels all say the same thing, which is not uncommon. Do you know what the word synoptic means? I use that word oftentimes. Uh, optic. What are optics? Eyes. Your eyes. Seeing. Vision. Sin, that prefix, just like synergy, cooperation, being together. Synoptic simply means seeing it the same way. Because Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell many of the same stories. They all see it the same way. But that John has a different purpose for his writing. And so it's very rare to see all three synoptics and John quote the exact same prophecy and then all make the exact same application. So there's no question what the fulfillment here is. It is John the Baptist coming to prepare so that Israel will see their Messiah. But then in verse 5, the glory of the Lord is going to be revealed and all flesh will see it together. Now suddenly we're talking revelation stuff. Now we're talking the sign of the Son of Man in the heavens, which Jesus himself talked about. When people on the planet are going to be running for the rocks and the caves, the dens of the earth, and saying, fall on us. There's going to be a time when the whole world is going to witness the return of Christ, but there's also a time when he's going to come to his own, and his own are not going to receive him, and God is going to send a witness ahead of him so that they are especially guilty for not recognizing him when he comes because God even sends one crying in the wilderness to make straight the path of the Lord. So let's go around and read these passages. Matthew 3, 1 to 5, Tom. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all of Judea and all of the region about the Jordan were going out to him. So Matthew makes it very clear. He even says, this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. And then he quotes a part of it so that there's no question what passage he's referring to. Similarly in Mark, Mark 1, 1 to 5, Steve's going to read that. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, 
who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Is there any question what Mark is saying? He told you who the prophet is. He told you what passage he's referring to. And Isaiah has already said, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth or make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Then he describes what that's going to be like. It's going to level out the mountains and the plains and the valleys to make it a straight road for him. Let every valley be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low. Let the rough ground become plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. He's saying, make straight the way of the Lord, which is exactly what Matthew and Mark said. And now Luke 3, 1 to 6, Micah is going to read that. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iturea, and Trachinius, and... Sure, why not? Yes. Uh -huh. And uh, uh, Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene, and the priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zacharias, I apologize for making you read all those. <laughs> it just seemed like a good place to start. In the wilderness, he came into all the district around Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every ravine will be filled, and every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked shall become straight, and the rough road smooth, and all flesh will see the salvation of God. Okay, so again, Luke makes it very clear what he's talking about. He, writing to a Gentile audience, makes it clear that Isaiah the prophet predicted John the Baptist. So those are the three synoptics. But now Leon is going to read for us, nice and loudly, I'm sure, with his large, mellifluous voice. <laughs> he's going to read John 1, verses 19 to 28, and you're going to hear the same thing yet again, just so you understand. This is the testimony of all four of the Gospels. And this is the witness of John, when the Jews sent, him, sent to him priests and Levites from J Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, and he confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. They said then to him, Who are you, so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing, if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize in water, but who among you stands one but among you stands one whom you do not know? It is he who comes after me, 
the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Okay, so all three synoptics and John identify John the Baptist, that he was baptizing, where he was baptizing, what his message was, that he was not the Christ, he didn't claim to be Elijah, he didn't claim to be the prophet to come. Instead, he was one crying in the wilderness saying, make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. All four books quote that. So when it comes to interpretation, we cannot interpret that or understand it any other way than what the Bible does. The Bible interprets itself on that matter. There is a voice who is calling, clear the way of the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low and let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain become a broad valley and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. That's what John quoted. And let the glory of the Lord be revealed. But then John wisely did not say the next part. And all flesh will see it together because in Christ's first incarnation, when he came to Israel, not all flesh saw it together. He came to his own and his own received him not. He's coming back and all flesh is going to see him. And he's going to come back not to redeem his people from their sin. He accomplished that the first time. He's coming back in judgment on the world that has been enemy to him. So again, Isaiah does this thing where he sees immediate prophecy fulfillment and then he sees distant prophecy fulfillment and he sees it all as one big fell swoop. He doesn't see the 2,000 year gap between the coming of the Messiah to his own and his own receive him not and the time when he comes back and every eye beholds him when everybody sees him all flesh will see it Why? Because the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Okay, now, follow me here. See if this makes sense to you. The first part of that prophecy, that there was a voice crying in the wilderness, make smooth the way of our Lord. That first part of the prophecy, according to the New Testament authors, all happened. Came true, and they all even quoted the passage and the prophet And they all said, that happened. Isn't that a surefire guarantee that the rest is going to happen? Yes. And by the way, since that is in the exact same chapter and only a couple of verses behind comfort my people Jerusalem, isn't that also a very valid prophecy? Or are you going to say, well, that whole thing about comforting Jerusalem, God gave up on Israel because He didn't know they were going to be that bad. He didn't know they were going to sin like that. So he gave up on them. But then the next verse, a voice crying in the wilderness, that's all true. That's all valid. That's all that all actually happened. And it all has to do with the church. Can you see how exegetically chaotic that is? There are parts of this chapter that are unquestionably fulfilled, just like they were predicted. So then we have to conclude that the whole rest of this chapter, and in fact the whole rest of this prophecy, 
is either accomplished or going to be accomplished. What you can't do is extricate it from the word of God and say, no, God's not going to do that because it's promised to a group of people I don't think deserve it. And you know what? They don't deserve it. That's why it's grace. And that's why God is going to be gracious to them, just like he's gracious to us, and he's going to accomplish it all through the one who John the Baptist was preparing the way for, through the Christ who's coming, the Messiah who's coming, who's going to do everything that God said he's going to do. A voice says, this is verse 6, a voice says, call out. And then the pronoun is sketchy there. Then I answered, or he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of a field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. And surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. But the word of our God stands forever. Human beings come and go. They're like the grass. They spring up for a little while. They're scorched by the heat. They fade away. They're gone. But the word of our Lord stands forever. Isn't that yet again encouragement to make sure you're saying everything that the word of God says? And an indictment against those who don't say everything that the word of God says. Because the word of our Lord stands forever, except those parts we don't like. Except those parts that just don't fit our hermeneutic, that doesn't fit our system. We, we don't like that. But the word of our Lord stands forever. Now, by the way, you still feel like reading some more, Tom? Sure. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. You're going to read verses 22 to 25. Because Peter actually picks up that very thing in order to emphasize that God's word continues on forever. And he doesn't just say that like it's something that he figured out or he imagined or he deduced. It's something that he's taking straight from the scripture, straight from a prophet, and straight from a reliable prophet who has already accurately predicted the coming of John the Baptist. You get what I'm getting at? So 1 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 22, says this. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flowers of grass. The grass withers, and the flower fails, but the Lord, but the word of the Lord remains forever, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. A voice says, call out. Then I answered, what shall I call out? The answer is, all flesh is grass. And all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. And the grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Peter picks that up, imports it into his letter to demonstrate the insignificance of human life here on the planet 
and the utter significance of the word of God, which lasts forever. The word of God cannot be broken. It cannot be changed. The word of God is established by the very fact that it is the unchanging God who says it. Therefore, pay attention to what it says. Verse 9. Get up upon a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up and do not fear and say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Okay, the announcement, here is your God, is going to come out of Jerusalem. It's going to come out of Zion, the regions of Jerusalem. And where on the whole planet did the first declaration of the coming of Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, where did that emanate from first? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Physical Jerusalem. Actual Jerusalem. Historic Jerusalem. That's where all of these things actually took place, where Jesus himself established himself as the coming Messiah. The promise of salvation by grace through faith in the Jewish Messiah first came to the world from Zion, from Jerusalem, exactly like Isaiah predicted 700 years in advance. And then it was announced to the whole world, which is what the language means when it says, get up on a high mountain, O Zion, speaking to the city collectively, the same way that Jesus spoke to Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you that killed the prophets, how often I would have gathered your children the same way here Isaiah is talking to Jerusalem as a city and collectively as a people. Get up on a high mountain so that everybody can hear it. Make the announcement, O Zion, bearer of good news. The gospel. The good news. There's just no way around it. It, it just happens to be that the gospel first emanated from Jerusalem. And by the way, it didn't first emanate from all the saved believers from the beginning of time. Okay, I'll get over that. I'll move on. But It emanated from actual, physical, historical Jewish Jerusalem. So get up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Notice he said it twice. That's for emphasis. The same way that he said comfort. Comfort to my people. The emphasis is that there's good news coming out of Jerusalem. Lift it up. Do not fear. And say first to the cities of Judah. These are the cities of Judah that have been destroyed by the Assyrians. They've been under the punishment of God. These are the cities of Judah, most of which are going to go into captivity during the Babylonian captivity. And yet God, in the midst of that, and in the midst of knowing what he's going to do with his people, holds out this promise of comfort and restoration and good, good news. And the good news that the cities of Jerusalem are going to hear or that the cities of Judah are going to hear emanating from Jerusalem is, look, there's your God. He's here. He's here among you. In other words, they are without excuse for the fact that he came to his own and his own received him not. Because the prophets themselves said, that's your God. He's here. He's among you. So that God could hold them really, really guilty. Behold, the Lord God will come with might. Steve, 
Look up Isaiah 53, verse 1, just a couple chapters forward. Micah, if you would, look up Isaiah 51, 5. In both of those verses, you're going to see how Isaiah uses this language of the arm of the Lord. And what you will see is the arm of the Lord is Jesus Christ. This is a direct reference to Jesus Christ. Behold, the Lord God will come with might. He will come with power, with his arm ruling with him. He's going to come in power. He's going to establish himself in power. He's going to establish his kingdom with power, but he's going to do it with his son, Jesus Christ, who is going to be king of kings and lord of lords. His arm is going to be ruling for him. And behold, when he comes, his reward is with him. That forgiveness of sins, the promise of salvation through grace, through faith in him. When he comes, his reward is with him and his recompense comes before him. In other words, the recompensing of Israel for all their sins, for all of their rebellion against God, that recompense is going to be established. And so is the forgiveness of sins, not only to the Gentiles who were brought in through that mystery that we've been reading about on Sunday mornings, but specifically Israel and Judah and Jerusalem are going to have their sins paid for. So Isaiah 53, 1, you're going to see another reference to the arm, and it's going to make it more obvious to you. Actually, several times in Isaiah, he uses this language, but I think these two passages will establish it. Isaiah 53, 1. Who has believed what we have heard, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This You could. You can read the whole rest of the chapter because it is about the arm of the Lord. But you know what? In four weeks, we will read the whole rest of the chapter. And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Just this past Sunday, I said to you yet again, Christianity is a revealed religion. Isaiah way back here said, and whom is the arm of the Lord going to be revealed to? In order to understand the least thing about God and about his son, it has to be revealed to you. And yet notice how God and his arm are two separate entities. And yet they are both God. They are both cooperative. They have to be revealed. Isaiah 51, 5, what does that say? My righteousness is near. My righteousness has gone forth. And my arm will judge the peoples. Coastlands will wait for me. And for my arm, they will wait expectantly. The coastlands will wait for me and wait for my arm, the Son of God. And yet again, I will reveal not only God himself, but my arm. So all I'm trying to establish is this reference to the might of the Lord and his arm of power and might is a reference to Christ himself, who is going to come in the very power of God. But he's not going to be widely known. He's going to have to be revealed. And yet he is predicted 700 years in advance, all the way back here in Isaiah. Isaiah is already preaching, I dare say, a Trinitarian doctrine. Verse 11. And like a shepherd, he, the arm of the Lord, will tend his flock and in his arm he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom and he will gently lead 
the nursing, and then the NASB adds the word use, the idea being lambs that are so young, so tender, so incapable of defending themselves that they're still nursing, and yet God is going to gently lead and protect even the youngest of his sheep. So then let's close tonight in John 10, because John 10 picks up that very same language, and it is Jesus that picks the language up. John 10 in the New Testament. This should be very familiar language to you, but Jesus didn't just pluck it out of the air. Jesus said it because it was already predicted of him back in Isaiah that he was going to be the shepherd who was going to tend his flock and that in his arms he would gather up his lambs, carry them in his bosom, and then gently lead even the young nursing ewes. I'm going to start reading at John chapter 10, verse 1, and I'm going to try to make it all the way to verse 18. Jesus speaking, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. There's Jesus already making reference to himself as shepherd. And when we read passages like this, we usually put the emphasis on the fact that we are referred to as sheep. And I myself have done that frequently and pointed out that sheep are not particularly smart animals. And they don't have much in the way of defense mechanisms. They don't have sharp teeth. They don't have claws. They're easy picking for lions and wolves and the animals who want to destroy them. But this time, I don't want to concentrate on the sheep. This time through it, I want to concentrate on the shepherd language because it is Jesus himself who could have referred to himself as anything he wanted in order to make the point, but he refers to himself as the shepherd because he is the satisfaction of the promises that we just saw in Isaiah 40. And just so that they don't miss the connection, he refers to himself repeatedly as the shepherd, as the good shepherd, as the one who's going to pick them up and carry them in his bosom. And anybody who tries to get to the sheep any other way than through him is a thief and a robber. But the one who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. And to him, the doorkeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls out his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. We talked just this past Sunday about the importance of names and how important names are to God. God who knows every star in his universe, and he calls them out by name. God who is going to gather all his people and give them white stones with a new name on them. God who calls people by name, not just generically. Well, the same way here, Jesus, the good shepherd, says, I'm going to call my sheep by name. Each individually, they're going to come to me because I, as their shepherd, am going to call to them and they're going to know my voice and they're going to respond. Verse 4, when he puts forth all his own, all his own sheep, he goes before them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. I guess it was two weeks ago 
that I said something about, I don't know how many of you actually have ever owned sheep. And Jennifer said, I did. I own sheep. (laughs) And I said to her, so then you can correct me if I'm wrong. And fortunately, she did not correct me. And therefore, she's still a member of the church. (laughs) And uh, no, 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 no. In any case, I said, you can't drive sheep. You have to lead sheep. She said, right, right. Okay, well, Jesus says here, He's going to put his own sheep forward out into the pasture. He's going to take them out of the sheepfold, which is where he keeps them, where he keeps them separated, where he keeps them safe and protected. And then he's going to bring them forth out so that they can graze in the pastures. But he's going to go before them. And then the sheep are going to follow him because they know his voice. Now, in the Middle East, in Israel 2,000 years ago, and even to this very day, a good shepherd talks to his sheep all the time. And his sheep actually do come to know his voice. The same way that if you've ever owned a, a really good dog, that dog will know your voice and respond to your voice. Sheep do the same thing. And apparently, sheep that are well-trained in knowing the voice of their own shepherd won't hear the voice of another shepherd. Another shepherd can come and tell the sheep, come on with me. They won't go. But a good shepherd will go and call his sheep by name, and they'll follow him because they know his voice. Jesus picked up that very reality, that very fact, and said, that's why my sheep are going to follow me, because they know my voice. Verse 5, and a stranger they simply will not follow, but they will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech, says verse 6, Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. Why? Perfect example of they don't know his voice. The ones who didn't get it, didn't get it because they don't follow his voice. But the ones who do belong to him, the ones who are his sheep, will follow him because they can hear his voice. So verse 7, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. And all who come before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he shall be saved. And go in and go out and find pasture. I don't want to go into this in any great depth. But in a sheepfold that would contain flocks of sheep, there was only one entrance. There was only one doorway. And the shepherd would stand in the doorway both to keep the enemies out and to keep the sheep in. He would even sleep right there in the doorway. And so the only sheep who could get into his sheepfold and be protected in his sheepfold, were the sheep that belonged to that shepherd. And so Jesus says, I'm the door for the sheep. I'm the one who sits in the opening. I allow my sheep into my sheepfold where I protect them. I make them follow me out to the pasture so that they can graze. I'm the one who provides for them. I'm the door. If anyone enters through me, he'll be saved. And he shall go in and go out and find pasture. The thief only comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. And I came that they might have life, that they might have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hireling and not the shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, 
He sees the wolf coming, and then he leaves the sheep, and he flees. And the wolf snatches up the sheep, and he scatters the sheep, and he flees because he is a hireling. And is not concerned about the welfare of the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. That word know there is that same thing that we've talked about in the past, uh, very similar to Adam knew Eve, and then she had a child. It means intimate relationship. Just like Jesus saying, depart from me, I never knew you. He knew who they were. He was cognizant of who they were, but he never had relationship with them. Here he says, I have this kind of intimate relationship with my sheep where I know them and they know me. We're in unity. We are one. Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay my life down for my sheep. So we could say right there, there's a bit of very particular atonement because he said, I don't lay down my life for all the sheep. I don't lay down my life for everybody else's sheep. And I don't lay my life down for the hirelings. And I don't lay down my life for anybody who's not following me. I lay down my life, yes, but I do it for my sheep. And I have other sheep which are not of this particular fold, and I must bring them also, and they shall hear my voice, and they shall become one flock with one shepherd. Probably that is a reference to, I'm here with the Jews, and I have other sheep, the Gentiles. I'm going to bring them together. They're going to be one fold. That's what we've been talking about in Ephesians on Sunday mornings. I'm going to bring them together so that they are one fold, the one new man. Verse 17, for this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay down my life on my own initiative, and I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. And this commandment to lay down my life and take it up again, I have from my Father. Okay, so all that language that we that we just love, all that language of shepherd and sheep, all that language of the good shepherd, all that language of our protector and our redeemer who's willing to leave the 90 and 9 and go get the one who's wandered off, that one whose rod and staff, they comfort me. That shepherd language was not new or unique to Jesus. He was simply saying what had already been said. In the Psalms, in the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The same thing that Isaiah had said, that he is going to be a shepherd to his sheep. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock, and in his arms he will gather the lambs, and he will carry them in his bosom, and he will gently lead all the nursing young lambs. We will pick up next week at verse 12, because the next big portion of this chapter is God, first person, defending himself and saying, okay, who's like me? Name somebody like me. And if you can't do that, then you have to admit that I singularly am the only God. And by the way, he keeps proving he's the only God by the fact that the things he says keep coming true. Therefore, everything else he has promised to Jerusalem, which is going to be the bulk of the next eight chapters... Everything that he says in promise to Jerusalem of reestablishment and comfort and a glorious future also has to come true, not only because God said it, 
but because big portions of it have already happened. So we can have tremendous confidence that the rest is going to happen because that's what the Word of God actually says. Okay? Okay. I mean, amen? Amen. (laughs) Any questions? Yes, I do have a question. Uh, Clarification on verse 2. The determination was between whether that was speaking eschatologically versus uh, time spent in captivity. More immediately, the time of captivity, yeah. How does the relate? Because it makes makes me think of Daniel nine. Gabriel says to Daniel, seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and the holy and the holy city uh, to finish the transgression to make an end for sin, uh, to make an end for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness. Right. That sounds like a, a completion to make atonement for sin. Right. In the seventy at the end of the seventy weeks, or that's the allotted time right. period. Yeah, I would agree with you. And in fact, that's what I quickly referenced as we went through it. And it also may be sort of a double fulfillment, that it has an immediate fulfillment in the time of restoring Israel after it's been utterly destroyed. Well, again, restoring Jerusalem after it's been utterly destroyed during the time of Cyrus, because you're going to see that coming up. The Babylon thing is coming up. The Cyrus thing is coming up. So it may be an immediate comfort, an immediate reassurance to the inhabitants of Judah that when they do go through that, they're not to think that God has abandoned them, that he's still going to reestablish them. But then it also, I think, clearly has eschatological overtones for the very reason you said, uh, a final end of sin, Israel's still sinning like crazy. So I think that's another example of how Isaiah speaks of the immediate future and then leaps directly to the ultimate fulfillment of everything. So my answer is, yeah, both. Makes sense. You know, I found it fascinating. I was trying to think if there is anyone else in the Bible besides Jesus who says this prophecy is about me, like John said Isaiah's prophecy was about him. Yeah. He knew who he was and he knew who he wasn't because he very clearly clear said who he wasn't. Yeah. But he knew he was the voice of one crying in the wilderness that Isaiah had spoken of. And if I were just reading Isaiah, it wouldn't be so clear to me that that was a reference to an individual <clears throat> like John. Right. There are so many other voices. Right. That no, I agree with that. I think that's why all four gospel writers point it out. Say, this is that. Didn't he know from the womb? Didn't he leap in the womb? Yeah. He leapt in the womb when he was six months old. And in fact, he's the one who said, when he saw his cousin standing on the shore of Galilee, he said, behold the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. I mean, he, he was preparing the way. Anything else? All right, good. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org and we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.